Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Lamp. I'm your host, James Lampin. And my guest today is the author of the book, Sex After, Dr. Kenesha Hall. How are you today? I am doing wonderful. First, I want to thank you for um, doing this. I know, you know, we all busy, we have lives. So I truly want to thank you for carving out the time to do this. You are more than welcome. It's it's an honor to sit down with, you know, fellow intellectuals and talk about what's <laughs> going on in the world. Well, see, you're the doctor, so <laughs> I would definitely consider you more the intellectual than I am. I am going to let you in on a little secret, okay? Okay. Um, people are actually very surprised when I say this, and I really do mean this. Um, some of the dumbest people I've ever met, I met in medical school. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Because <laughs> oftentimes, we, we, it takes a certain level of dedication to academics to get to medical school. So you get there and you are there with all of these very, very intellectual beings with absolutely no common sense. Oh, you know what? Okay, yeah. I've ran into that too many times. It's, yes. you, definitely, you definitely need balance. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to start it off with um, I know I follow your page and you're a graduate of Howard University you know it. To, what was it like the first day you stepped on the campus okay so the first day I stepped on campus um, was actually for my interview and before I went to the interview I remember reading up about all these wonderful things um, that Howard has done, all the wonderful people that have been there. So my first day of actual class, actually matriculating as a medical student, you get a refresher course in the legacy that is Howard University College of Medicine. And it's mind blowing. I am, I was sitting on what I felt was like holy ground. This is where um, the great, you know, um, greats of my profession studied from, you know, Charles Drew and um, LaSalle LaFalle, Dr. Jenkins, the first African-American president of the American um, Academy of Pediatrics, like all of these wonderful people. And then you can go to undergrad, like Toni Morrison, like studied here and wrote here. Like that thought of all the great people that had come before you it's like a cheerleading squad of ancestors saying you can do this that's what i felt like so are you are you actually from the dc area or no i am from shreveport louisiana i am a small town country girl from louisiana so um uh, that wasn't my first time you know outside of Louisiana, but I had been on the East Coast already for two years. I was living in Philadelphia um, prior to moving to D.C. But you have to understand, being a country girl from the South, I had had different experiences and nothing like this. Nothing like where you walk into an institution and everyone from the bottom to the top, the front door to the back door, looks mm -hmm. like you and it's rooting for you to succeed. That was a first for me. 
what about the actual um, culture of DC? Because you said you come from Shreveport. That's a that's a big difference. Shreveport, it, Louisiana. It was so diverse to the point of almost distracting. Like I'm here to go to school and get an education, but it's just beautiful chocolateness everywhere. And that's <laughs> when I learned about all the varieties of chocolate. Like they weren't just black; they were, you know, Caribbean American. They were Nigerian. You know, they were Ethiopian. They were. I mean, it's just so diverse and this is so crazy so i go to an historically black college and university and walk away with one of my closest friends being um a persian young lady named layla so it was just and that's uh, something i would like for people to know about going to hbcus on the campus it's still extremely diverse and it was a wonderful wonderful experience now, would you say that because um, because of, because HBCUs are normally not known for being too diverse, but Howard is one of the most prestigious schools, not only HBCU, but just in the country, period. So do you think that has something to do with it? Or? Well, I know. I just think, I think we as a culture and society in general is just so misinformed about HBCUs. Because I've been to other HBCUs. I've been to Grambling, I've been to Southern, I've been to Xavier, and I still believe it to be similar there as well. P yes, these are historically Black colleges and universities, founded mostly in conjunction with Christian organizations, especially the African um, Methodist Episcopal churches, to give opportunities to free Black people to pursue higher education. That's our legacy. But the actual admissions for HBCUs are even more diverse as far as continents and countries represented than predominantly white institutions. Wow, I didn't know that. A lot of people don't know that and everybody's always like, oh, why are you always on this HBCU kick? Because you don't understand. I will never say that it's the only reason why I'm successful because I am a determined person and I knew when I took on the journey to be a physician, I was going to complete it. But there's no way I would be the person that I am without my HBCU experience. And any parent, young person considering pursuing higher education, you are cheating yourself if you do not consider our wonderful legacy-driven HBCUs. Wow, that should make you the, the spokesperson for HBCU. This is not opinion, it's fact. HBCU graduates have higher average incomes than minorities that graduated from PWIs. We have the most minorities as executive level um, personnel in Fortune 500 companies. Like We produce the most Black attorneys, most Black PhDs, most Black physicians in the entire country like there is a network there like no other wow. you're cheating yourself you really are cheating yourself i'm glad that you mentioned these things because i had no idea i know most people don't i don't know and they for some reason think that going to a hbcu is a last resort or a second class education do you understand the people that trained me weren't the best black physicians. I was trained by some of the best 
physician, not in the country, but the world. I was trained by physicians who have been knighted, that have, you know, actual privileges to take care of royalty in other countries from Ethiopia to England. Like, these are the people that trained me. Wow. So which, what, um, what field of medicine are you in? I am an anesthesiologist. I represent less than 2% of all board-certified anesthesiologists in this country, being a woman and being Black. Wow, my it's funny you mention that because my nephew, he's actually just enrolled at Rochester University and that's what he wants to be, an anesthesiologist. And you should definitely send him my contact information. I, oh, listen, I definitely, look, because you extended the offer, I definitely will. What were some of the biggest challenges you faced pursuing um, it? At different levels, different things, going to school, I struggled a lot with homesickness, um, so that was a struggle. And then choosing a specialty that's still very much so white male dominated um, has presented its own struggles. And the politics and corporate America games that are being played in healthcare right now can really, really affect physicians and how they practice. When people think of healthcare reform, and not everyone, but there's this overwhelming view that, okay, these doctors out here making all of this money, and that's such a one-sided skew. Don't think about the fact that the average medical student graduates with more than a quarter of a million dollars of student loan debt and are likely to file for bankruptcy um, at least two to three times over the course of their career. And not just, not specifically because of poorly managed funds, like you graduate with two mortgage payments of student loan debt, it's, it's a big deal. And you have all of these outside non-clinical forces telling you how to take care of your patient from insurance companies to pharmaceutical companies, gouging prices, charging you thousands of dollars for what cost them pennies on the dollar to make. And I don't think information is presented and packaged well to the average American to understand the underlying struggles that we have as physicians. Like there's this huge conversation right now about physician burnout. Like my practice actually pays someone a full salary to sit at a desk and argue with insurance companies all day on why they can't tell me what I can and cannot do for my patients. I went to medical school. I trained. I have more than 13 years of education and training underneath my belt and I'm board certified. What right do you have to tell me what is best clinical practice for my patients? So it sounds like you guys have a lot of more battles to fight as well. Yes, it's, it's, and that's the thing, like you're so focused in medical school on learning everything you can about the human body and the disease process to be the best doctor you can be. The business of medicine, the politics of medicine aren't really taught. You learn that, you know, on the job in the midst of carrying the weight of the world on your struggles, trying to be the best physician you can be to take care of every single one of your patients. And 
I mean, most of the time you're like, you, you, well, they're not most of the time, all the time. You don't have time to worry about what the insurance companies will and will not pay for because your priority is this human life. And you just wish that the other participants in this healthcare system, that was their priority as well, human life. But it does not seem to be that way. Wow. I want to back up for a minute. Um because it, we, you talked about like the dedication, the studies, the hard work that it takes to become a doctor, and you went into the, you became an anesthesiologist. Was there ever a time you considered giving up? Oh, of course. So um, what, what, what inspires you not to? That support system, though. One, I mean, so many people rooting for me that I did not want to let down, and I'm a competitive spirit. I don't. I don't start things I don't plan to finish, but there were several, my mom will tell you, several times I called home and I, I mean, especially in the midst of battling homesickness, like I just want to, with, let me just withdraw from school and I will come home and um, sell some real estate. Like, I mean, just thinking of other options that I could do because, I mean, it's difficult. Um, it's not impossible, but it, it definitely was not a cakewalk, but I was in a great environment where I had all of these wonderful, from my classmates, we all went through struggles together. We'd have all our moments where we would just sit and just complain, complain and scream and then be like, okay, that was nice. Now let's get back to the books. We had, you know, professors and actual practicing physicians at the hospital that would check in on us. That's one thing I always tell people, that's why I have a special place in my heart for Dr. Deborah Holly Ford. She is actually one of the um, academic advisors still at Howard University College of Medicine today. She made sure to check in on the students beyond, you know, what by any means was required of her um, as an attending. So when you have that amazing support behind you and you know the sacrifices that were made to give you this wonderful opportunity. You just can't give up. You can't. So do you feel like because you was at an HBCU, um, the professors, you know, they had more of an emotional invested emotional investment in you as well because they want to oh. see someone look this looks like them, you know, coming up that they're Most. molding to come behind them. Most definitely. Okay. So your first day at Howard University College of Medicine, you're given three advisors. I don't know, and I'm not saying that it doesn't happen, but I don't know any other medical school that does this. You are given um, a faculty advisor. This is a PhD professor in one of the sciences, whether it's biochemistry, um, physiology, anatomy, you're given one of those. You're also given an actual practice practicing physician. This is a doctor. This is the road you are trying to travel, someone who's already been there, and also an upper-level medical student that's near the end, but is not far removed from the beginning where you are. You are given those three advisors. And even, like I said, even beyond that, my attendings who were teaching me were not teaching me so that I could be like them. They're saying, well, I'm teaching you so you're better than Wow. And again, coming from the South, have you ever heard of the crawfish in the boiling pot mentality? I have. Where, so when you boil 
crab or you boil crawfish, they the crawfish will pull the legs of any other crawfish that's trying to climb out of the boiling pot and actually step on them to get higher. Hmm. So that the mentality is something that I have seen amongst minorities in majority white situations where you only have a few black people that garner some type of success. They would rather pull you down than for you to get higher than them or actually get out. So that was not all of my experience, but that was the majority of my experience prior to going to Howard. But when I got to Howard, I had all of these wonderful people telling me, like, I am not teaching you to be like me. No, you are going to be better than me. Wow. So that was mind blowing. That's yeah, that's truly a blessing. Um, I think I think we both can safely assume that you wouldn't have got that at a, another college. <laughs> no. <laughs> I want you to tell us more about the um, women's health expert. So aside from practicing anesthesiology, um, I am a sexuality counselor because the, it is for the same reasons I got into medicine. I want people to feel good. I want people to be healthy and I want people to live their best lives with a good quality of life. And um, it was a personal journey that I was also taking with my mother after the passing of my father, where I was so afraid that after losing my dad and them being so madly in love, I thought that I might lose my mom to a broken heart. So it was important for me to remind her that even though she was a devoted and wonderful wife and wonderful mother and may have felt like I'm her baby, and she may have felt like I didn't need her anymore. Beyond being a mother and a wife, she was still a woman and a phenomenal woman. So that's how I kind of ended up on this road. Um, when people, people over-sexualize even the term sex, I more so come from a, uh, an expression of womanhood. Every woman needs to know that she has everything within herself to be this magical, beautiful being that she was created to be. And so I wrote a book. The title of the book is Sex After, but it's not as titillating as the title might lead you to believe. Every single chapter is about something that we go through as women. The first chapter is Sex After the First Time. This awkward, crazy experience, and where do you go from there? How do you not lose yourself in this world that burdens you with over-sexualizations and all the things that we go through as women? There's a chapter about, you know, sex after college, sex after, you know, starting your career, sex after marriage, kids, divorce, losing a spouse, um, a serious cancer diagnosis, everything that you go through, not forgetting who you are and what you possess as a woman. And it's, it's truly a magical thing. And we have to evolve. There's always going to be some stressors, obstacles in life, and you have to continually evolve and prioritize yourself. It's not selfish. 
prioritizing yourself means that you don't have to pour from an empty cup. I can't help you if I can't help myself. So let me let me ask you about the um because those are some great aspects. But I want to focus on the first one. You said sex after the first time. Was there like a certain age group you had in mind? Because keep in mind, some there's there will be different time frames women will lose well, men no, and women. No, no, no. But but this, since we're talking about women, we but I want we to talk, can talk about, about men too. No one is inherently born with this ability to be this awesome, magnificent lover, even if you are. I refuse to believe that I, the majority of people fumble through their first time, like blindly the blind. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're inexperienced and your partner is, is experienced. The first time that you are having sex, it's usually, it should be comical, but it's usually two people fumbling, and it doesn't matter what age you are, people fumbling through trying to figure this whole thing out. So you don't think it makes it, I mean, because I, I do agree with that part of it, but I, but there's also, the reason I was mentioning age is because, um, let's say a, a, a young lady, because I'm only focusing on women, just because this book, okay. this is the aspect you wrote the book about, but a young woman who loses her virginity at 13, as opposed to a woman, a young lady who loses it maybe at like 21, 22, and the reason I say that at 13, I don't really think you would really understand what love is. You haven't really had any experiences with if you like, let's say you're like 21, 22, you didn't have sex in high school, you went to college, you met a gentleman, you know, he's giving you feelings that you never felt before, and then you take it to when the next you, level. You, you've taken so many wrong turns, but let's go back to the first one. Okay. Quit confusing <laughs> sexual intercourse with intimacy. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Fair and enough. that's when I don't focus on an age, because people ask me, because I have a daughter. We talk, I have a four-year-old. When will my daughter read my book? As soon as she possibly can. I want every young lady to read this book before she's 13, because hmm. this book is not an encouragement to go out and lose your virginity at 13. This book is a realization that even before you start this journey, there are things that you are going to go through as a woman. And you really, really need to know your self-worth and it'll help you navigate those stressors a lot more easily. So hopefully when the young lady is reading this book or her mother is reading this book, it will give them something I would love for more mothers and daughters to read this book because I wrote this book for my mother. And mm -hmm. like I said, I have a daughter. She will read this book probably, I want to say between eight and 10. And she we will have conversations about it because this book should start the conversation. One, that they won't make the mistake that you just made and assume that sexual intercourse is the same as intimacy. Okay. That they will choose when, where, how, and with whom they share the most precious gift given to them, and that being their self. Okay, fair enough. I, I knew the difference. I don't want to be clear, but I just thought the age thing was a little more interesting. But I do see what you're saying, though. 
But there are grown people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s who still cannot navigate the difference between sexual intercourse and intimacy. The quickest way to hurt feelings is what? Assumption. Okay. And a lot of people are so uncomfortable at any age having conversations about sex and what it means to them and what they and expectations that we end up in discourse. All so why do, you think, why, do you think, why do you think they are uncomfortable? I'm just curious. Well, more so as women, we are socialized to believe that we are supposed to be silent, chaste individuals. Of course, there are movements now that are giving, giving women their voice, but we are over-sexualized in media, but still taught to be seen and not heard and meek and mild and chaste. Like we like with walking around with with the proverbial chastity belt, and that is not the case. There's nothing absolutely wrong with being a woman and owning your sexuality. That does not mean that you are um, fast or loose or any of those derogatory statements. To me, that means I know my worth, and I'm not just gonna take a discount and give myself away to anyone. Okay. So with that, is it, are you, are we talking about, are we talking about making sure we establish like the rapport with the person or just what you feel yeah. like? Yeah. Okay. Making sure. So there are two basic rules to the actual intercourse of sex. One is permission. No parties involved should ever be having sex without, first and foremost, permission. Two is pleasure. That is your birthright. You were born with an actual inalienable right to receive and give pleasure. Love does not have to hurt. And I know there's a difference between sex and love, but that was a cliche I would use. So those are the two rules. You should have permission, and it should feel good. So do you think sex is more mental or physical? See, that's the thing. Sex is a very broadly used word. Sexual, sexuality, the definition of you as a being, there is sex as, as it pertains to gender, male versus female, and then there's sexual intercourse. Intercourse is an actual physical form of communication with emotional and mental aspects. But sex, my sexuality, is almost a spiritual experience. Does that make sense? Or did I lose you? No, I'm still there. Now, my, the people listening may be lost, but I'm still there. So the actual intercourse, the actual act, of engaging with a partner, sexual intercourse, is yes, a physical um, activity with mental and emotional repercussions. There are strings tied. You can, I don't care how many times you try to make it so 
there is no such thing as sex without strength. We're not, we're not, yeah, we're not created that way. As human beings, it has nothing to do with man versus male versus female either. As human beings, we can actually be healed and actually feel energy with human touch. So that it is impossible to have the most intimate of human touches and there be no strings attached. Totally agree. Um, now, my sexuality, the way I define my womanhood, who I am, is a mental and spiritual process. It's linked to my self-esteem, my self-worth, my core values of belief. It's linked to um, emotions as far as how I feel about myself and others. That's my sexuality. And it's still sex but it's mine and I have an ownership of that. Okay. So when you order that and you have a priority in owning your sexuality, understanding your sexuality before you go sharing it with someone, when you get those things in order, you make better decisions. So you, so basically you would say it's a lot of, it's a lot of, um, sex is being abused because people not comfortable with themselves. Would you say that? Not comfortable with themselves, but not necessarily. I wouldn't say not comfortable. Not, I would say they don't lack understanding. They don't know themselves. That's what yes. I should say. Okay. Lack okay. understanding. Yeah, I, it's it's <laughs> it's weird because. As a as a man, most men are always look at sex from a physical standpoint. But um, I mean, I can't say that I'm different from a whole lot. But for me, it's more mental and physical because again, it's supposed to be pleasurable, it's supposed to be enjoyable. So if if the if your if your spirit not right, if your your energy not right, then I really don't see how you can enjoy the physical part of it. Well, people like to compartmentalize and put things into these blocks and you start, that's how you start to get pathology where you get these syndromes and wrong behaviors because we are not taught proper. And we don't, like I said, this conversation that we're having right now, you have to understand you're having this conversation with me. I'm a trained expert. But do you know how difficult these conversations are to have with the average adult, let alone child or adolescent or teenager with raging hormones? Oh, but it's a conversation that needs to be had. Oh yeah, definitely with a, with a teenager because they just, uh, it's just, you know, they just not, they just not ready. For I mean, they think they are physically, but just for everything that comes with sex, they're not ready for that. That's my opinion, but <laughs> I, I mean there there is plenty of medical data that supports your opinion. Like they should not be allowed to make any decisions about their life so whatsoever with the amount of raging hormones that are coursing through their veins and essentially their brain. Um but with that being said, I I don't believe that they are lost causes. I do believe that if these conversations are being had and they are being encouraged to prioritize, as I said before, and really learn themselves. 
and establish a self-worth and get in touch with themselves, I think that they would make better choices. Definitely. We definitely got to, we all definitely have to work on the education piece because that definitely will help. Now, you've accomplished a lot in your career. Um, you, you know, you, you, achieved the, you achieved your medical degree, your anesthesiologist. Uh, what's the most rewarding aspects of your life right now? Right now? Right now. <laughs> I'm finally at a place where I can say I found some form of balance. Um, in the beginning, being, you know, this overachieving, professional and chronically neglecting my personal life and a lot of my personal relationships from friends to families to significant others because I was so I don't I, I guess almost a workaholic but now I am at a point where I, I really feel like I found a great deal of balance I get so much satisfaction from being a mom and seeing the world through my little girl's eyes. Um, even beyond the professional achievements. So balance is probably the most rewarding aspect of my life right now. And still having the ability to practice and still touch my patients' lives and be a good physician. But at the end of the day, I want to be a good mom. I want to be a good role model. And I want my daughter to know that um, I wasn't just there. I was present. How long did it take you to get to that point? Uh, let's see. She's four. So let's say four years. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, I, I never, prior to having my daughter, I, ha I had no desire to have balance. I was just going, you know, rock this thing till the wheels fall off. Like, I was a hired gun. I was what they call a traveling physician. At several state licenses, you call me, you send me a plane ticket, I'll be in it. If the price is right, I will be at your, in your operating room knocking people out. So, I mean, I did have a, a desire to even find that balance. I lived from one achievement to the next, from writing a book to starting a hair care line to investments, like, give me the world and just let me tackle it. And then God, and at that time also realizing I did not believe that I would ever have children or be a mother. And then God throws a monkey wrench in the grand scheme of things. And I remember like, even after I had her sitting there and holding this small life in my hands, and I'm like, I'm a doctor, but I'm like, how am I going to keep this little bundle of joy alive? Like, what do you do? Like, medical school does not teach you how to be a mother. Like, uh, she's not what teaching me to eat medicines, but what do I? What do I do? Like, I have to teach. I have to teach her right from wrong. I have to, you know, be emotional support. I have to teach her coping skills. Like, this is a lot of work. Well, let me ask you, because you touched on it, and I, like, it's, I always find it really fascinating, a woman's opinion, especially women who've achieved a high level of success. Like, do you, because you're a woman and society tells you, you know, you have to have, you know, 
a society has made made the ideal for successful women is you know getting married, having a family. Like, did you ever feel pressure to do that? Um, no, I never, I didn't because the close, the people that are closest around me, being my my inner circle, would never put that type of pressure on me. Like, not my parents, not my closest friends or loved ones. They would never put that type of. They still don't put that type of pressure on me because. Currently, right now, I am a single mom. I'm not married, but they would, and they still would never put that type of pressure on me. My parents always wanted me to be happy, and they were very, very vocal in telling me, you are going to have to decide what it is that makes you happy. I think that's great. I mean, because it just seems like that, like... um women it seems like women always have to have a choice like this times i talk to my wife and she'll and she'll always say like i'm a mother first and that's great but it's just like uh, like i remember i'll never forget i had a situation at work my daughter my daughter's a preemie um so my daughter was in the hospital you know she's fighting for her life i'm mentally checked out i'm at work and my supervisor's like well you know, your your wife is there. She could be handling that. And I'm like, man, are you fucking kidding me? Like, are you really going to say this in my face? Like, I'm not a father. Like, this is my only child. This is my daughter. I don't want to hear about my wife is handling that. I'm, I know. I'm involved too. It, but it's just the way that society has set it up. Like, a, like, they've almost made it like a woman has to get married. She has to you know, she has to get married. She has to have a family in order for her to be deemed successful. Even if she's got a great career, she's successful. Um, there's this, this misconception that a woman can't be happy unless she has a man. Like, a, a, a single woman is, is almost like she can't be happy on her own. She has to have a husband, a man, somebody in her life that completes her. But you, we don't get that. Men don't have that type pressure. Like, if we if I'm if I'm a forty to fifty year old man who has a successful career, then I'm just considered an eligible bachelor. When I want to settle down, exactly, not an <laughs> old spinster. Down. Yeah, but when a woman is in her forties, fifties, and she's single, and she could be no matter how much she's enjoying life, no, nobody believes that she's content with being single. She just has to have. And that's the socialization of gender roles. Like that's. That's what society would have you believe about gender roles. And even as far as we have come, these gender roles still, you know, inherently exist. But that's why if we, you know, give our children permission to, you know, explore their self-worth and what it is that's going to make them happy without all of these society pressures. My grandmother used to say this all the time. And it didn't mean much to me until I became an adult and realized what she was really trying to say. She would always tell me, she was like, you know what? And she called me Nene. She was like, Nene, what other people think of you is none of your business. We're so worried about what other people think about us and allowing them to attach worth to every single, you know, movement and decision that we make. And that's not how life is supposed to be. 
what other people think about you is none of your business. At the end of the day, the only person that I have to go to sleep with and I have to live with and I have to be comfortable with is me. Wow. Well, I definitely want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for doing this because you didn't have to free your schedule up to do this. So I truly appreciate you doing it. More than welcome. Um, would you like to tell the listeners how they can follow you on social media? I am at Dr. Kanisha on Instagram and Twitter, and I am Dr. Kanisha on Facebook. And they can always find me on my website at Dr. Kanisha, D-R-K-A-N-I-S-H-A dot com. All right. Well, again, thank you, Dr. Hall. And I want to thank everyone for listening to another episode. And you all have a great day.